The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 21st, 2014, the Is Thanksgiving Red or Blue edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C., back after our Chicago trip, our Superfest, now just back home, back to the grind. On today's show, we'll do Obama versus the GOP on immigration. Is his executive power grab necessary or is it dangerous or both? Then the Keystone Pipeline and the fate of Senator Mary Landrieu, Democrat from Louisiana. And we will also discuss the week's most urgent question, which is, is Thanksgiving a Democratic or Republican holiday? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, another Thanksgiving segment. It'll be another Thanksgiving segment, John. Oh, what is it? Uh, it the, we're going to do the best Thanksgiving food that you, our listeners, are not eating. We're going to just riff on that. We're going to talk about great Thanksgiving food. Okay. This is all so you can talk about your mom's pies again. Possibly. So you hear two voices there. They're the same other two voices we always hear. The handsome voice of John Dickerson. Hello, John Dickerson. Wearing another knit tie. David Plotz. I know. I'm... I'm I know still, John is like knit tie man. I know. Right? Well, in the wind, I was back in Chicago again, uh, doing something at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and uh, so I'm still wearing basically what I was wearing last night. So that's why I'm wearing. That's why I'm dressed this way. I just got off the plane. And uh, the other voice, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily Bazelon in New Haven. Hello, David yes, Plus. you're in New Haven today. I'm in New Haven today. Good. All right. Just a brief pitch. You are probably listening to Serial. You're listening to this podcast, which means you're very likely listening to Serial, the podcast that that is being done by um, This American Life, Sarah Koenig, murder mystery procedural that she's been telling over the past couple of months. It's a fabulous, fabulous podcast. It's it's all the rage. It's a sensation. You may or may not know that Slate has a great podcast about Serial, Slate's Serial special podcast. After you've listened to that week's episode of Serial, you can get your methadone, get your second dose of cereal by listening to this fantastic podcast that Katie Waldman and Dan Coyce and, and Willa Paskin have been doing about cereal itself. So go to iTunes, check it out, look for um, Slate Cereal Podcast, things I, like that. I thought their episode on Cocoa Puffs was really exemplary. It's spelled cereal differently, John. Oh, Did you know that? Damn. Damn it. You know there's actually a podcast about our podcast so we have a podcast our serial podcast is about serial another podcast and, and someone is doing a podcast about our podcast about serial and they're doing it in the it's room more with and more meta every layer that goes out yes yeah, so there's a matryoshka dolls everywhere our first topic we are going to talk about the president and immigration and his proposal we're in a slight bind so so it's it's, it's, it's a little bit it's confusing. the conundrum show it's conundrum. so we did our live superfest on monday night in new york city and we discussed this big subject of the moment which was president obama's impending showdown with the gop over immigration very boisterous discussion and not very much has changed since we had that discussion so we are going to play that segment 
But we're going to have a quick coda at the end on what has changed. There's one other piece of awkwardness, which is that we're recording on Thursday. The president's announcement is coming on Thursday night. But we know what's coming in the announcement, so that doesn't mean that much. We're, we're, I think we're going to be able to talk a little bit about the changing dynamics of it after we run this segment. So here's the segment. President Obama is on the verge of making an announcement that he is going to change American immigration policy to the extent that he can. He is going to do various things that John is about to describe. And when he does that, we are going to then enter into a great moment of political warfare, which we will then discuss. But John, let's start with what is it that President Obama is likely to do? When is he likely to do it? And uh, why isn't he going to do more? Well, we don't know what he's going to do yet, so we don't know if he could... I mean, he's not going to do the whole thing because he can't do the whole thing. He can't just take all 11.3 undocumented workers and say, it's fine. You're okay. You can stay here without trouble. What we do know he's contemplating is um, prioritizing the the, uh, deportations. And so what he may do is allow the parents of children who are already – who are here uh, to no longer be under threat of deportation. There may also be an expansion of uh, some other programs that would protect more people. We're talking maybe 5 million um, undocumented workers would be uh, brought in under this protection. Now, when will he do it is a crucial question. Does he do it before the funding debate for funding uh, for the entire government for the next year? Or does he wait till after that? Does he, is he spoiling for a fight? And this is the central question. I mean, this is about immigration, which is important. But this is also setting the table for the last two years. And for the 2016, Just I'm just trying to amp up why we're talking about this. Yeah. Um, and it will affect your children's future. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, it's... it's you know, does he decide to have this big fight and then draw the Republicans into a big fight over funding the government, which they've threatened to do in retaliation, which means it's like a big hairball immediately? Uh, or does he go with a limited hairball um, and wait till after the government funding discussion has and happened? And if he provoked a big fight right now, wouldn't that feel like a really different move for him to make? A sign that the last two years of his presidency has truly done with continuing to push for a bipartisan compromise, for really believing in that, and that he was going to be this very feisty, aggressive, more liberal, um, you know, pugilistic president, which is not well, the president we're used to seeing. I know, it would but be you know, a sea change. It is, like, it is like Charlie Brown finally is not going to have the football pulled away. He's, like, not going to play. He's going to go... Yeah, he's well, gonna, he's going to go make his own he's game. He's going to go get a box. come or not. Except that they could also just defund the whole football game and then <laughs> be stuck. Right, but then if they defund the football game and it gets into a big fight, uh, then he wins the football game. So, can why? we stop talking about football? Because that's I just the thing want, I've been listening, guys. I just wanted to so beat this until the horse wait, turned wait, into wait, glue. Wait, like, can I just, why is it that, that the president... So, so what he's going to do, he's not going to... He can't make people citizens, as far as I know. Right. Um, he, but he's, he's simply going to change the, the order in which the government pursues certain legal processes. Why is this, why is this legal or alternatively... Um, why, you know, why is this a big deal? Maybe this is not a big deal at all. Constitutionally, or- you mean? Because they're saying that he's basically ripping up the Constitution to do this. Is right. he? So let's take a little step back here. You know, until essentially 9-11 and really even after that, the United States did not deport hundreds of thousands of people a year. We had a lot of illegal immigrants. They lived here. If you were undocumented, you basically usually stayed. You were maybe a little nervous, but you did not face kind of imminent threat of deportation. You are then, our grandparents. 
Right. Then 9-11 happened. The government created the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and funded it very heavily. And when that happened, the, pr- the pressure to act, once you have all this money and all these ICE agents running around, they have to do something. So then the Bush administration started Secure Communities, which was supposed to be their program for deporting criminal undocumented people. And instead, the definition of criminal became more and more swollen to the point that Obama has been deporting 400,000 people a year. Most of them are there. I think more than half, their only crime is crossing the border without permission. And then there's a big proportion of like driving without a license. So the number of truly dangerous, violent criminals we are deporting is, I think, between 15 and 18 percent. That is small. And yet we continue on as if all of the human tragedy and suffering that comes from these divided families is not moving. To and us. this goes back to David's point about Charlie Brown and football, which is to say that a lot of people believe the president did that as a way to make as to show a good make a good faith effort. Uh, to be tough about deportations as a way to buy goodwill with Republicans who he would then put a deal together and he would be shielded from people saying, well, this is really just somebody who wants to be easy on lawbreakers. And it and worked yet with he, the Senate. They passed right. his legislation, but it failed with the House. And I think finally he seems to but be fed up. Right? Can I go back to the but back to your original point, which is that this has maybe this has nothing to do with immigration. Maybe this is about he's basically saying I tried to work with Republicans on various deals over time, being the person that I campaigned as. That didn't work. So now I'm going to actually try and get something done by pushing through the other direction. Right. But it seems to me he picks if he wants to pick a fight, this is an excellent fight to pick because of the demographics that you create this sense the Democrats are the party who care about the voters, the, the issues Latino voters, and they're creating more Latino voters, presumably, at least in the longer term, and certainly enhancing their appeal. And so it seems like it does have everything to do with immigration, although it also is the way for him to just assert himself at this moment. So, Emily, the, the, the question has been, uh, President Obama's justification for all this is, I have enforced the laws, as John just described, and I pushed for a bill. The bill passed the Senate, and we have a legislature that refuses to act. They refuse to function. I will not sit by while this national catastrophe continues. I'm going to act. And therefore, he's going to take executive action. He's... Which, which is legal, you believe. It's really inaction, it's, right? He's going to announce ahead of time what his deportation priorities and non-priorities right. are, as opposed to simply only deporting some of the people, which he would have done anyway, but not without... But the difference here is this idea that you make this policy announcement that then lets some category of... It's sort of, I am not enforcing the law for this particular group of people, as opposed to, I always right. enforce the law selectively because that's what... Government agency. And then he adds a spoonful of sugar with the, to, to the extent that he's trying to buy off his opponents by saying, I'll take the money I would have spent deporting these families or tearing up these families, and I'll put it at the border. So he's trying to basically say, I'm pro-family, pro pro-type border, now argue against but, that. Okay, but, so let's, but let's go to the sort of more basic question, which is, isn't it disturbing to have a president governing by executive decree, even if, we, if, if the even if they're, it's do, the president is doing that because the legislature is non-functioning. But we're in a very dangerous situation. We happen to be lucky right now that we, the party that holds the executive branch is not as interested in executive power as the party that doesn't hold the executive well, branch. Well, depends how you define that. I don't that. know. No. <laughs> no, the re- Republic, I mean, a Republican president's Republican presidents will use the executive authority much more extensively than Democratic 
president's Wait, will. but to actually further your and, argument, if Obama... But it's bad in either case. Well, Who's going to take your argument for you? Go back. I mean, look at the trajectory. If Obama does this, takes dramatic executive action on immigration, look at his record with the National Security Agency, with not, you know, in any way investigating torture under the Bush administration. There are a number of the non-binding climate change. I mean, it's non-binding, but still, these are really strong presidential moves. And so arguably... He is going to leave behind a legacy of a very emboldened presidency, and 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 he is just as forceful about that as George W. Bush was. Right, but to David's point, so shouldn't you be nervous when a president right. is using uh, tools of his office because you don't want them to have that kind of power anyway? Um, oh, I, I think about there are Libya two reasons. Right. Well, but I mean, uh, the, but you would say in those yes, instances more. it was bad and there, there should be debate. And therefore, why isn't that the case in this case? Right. So I feel somewhat hypocritical about this because I get worried about Libya and Syria and things that's and other than the, and certainly the NSA. But then when President Obama wants to do something that seems sort of nice and cheery to me, like immigration reform, I sit back and sort of don't worry too much about. Well, yeah, and but, I do think but, you're right. Well, here's the, a way. But here's a way to w- get yourself out of that. Well, I think one thing okay. it's a bad bad way to make law. It's a it's a bad way to make law because the next president can come in and say I'm going to undo this. Yeah, so you fish tail won't, right? Well, because it's too politically. Yeah. But if they've just won re-election, they're they probably figured out how to solve the that political problem? problem just like 10 days ago. But um, guys, I think Dana has a question behind But you. hold on, wait, let me make the oh, the second point before we uh, it, so it's only it'll that. just take me 14 or 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> the uh, but um, Oh, the other point, though, David, is what if in the sclerotic system we have where nothing gets done, um, is it okay just to kind of get things going if you have a president, you know, reach as far as they can, and then a strong legislature comes right after him like hammer and claw and tooth and nail that. and all the rest? I'm going to answer that in one second okay. after Dana does, cause, but I, have a, I really wanted to answer that question. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow there, David. No, this is a, just actually a factual question about the executive Uh-oh. order. So the... the <laughs> Blowing our cover. We're going to get you back in emoji land, honey. I know I'm going to. There's going to be an emoji quiz. Yeah. No, Dickerson is going to know this. This is exactly the kind of thing Uh, he always does. Oh, no. My little my little emoji is like a spotlight. And uh, anyway, go ahead. At least I'm not no, wearing so, pajamas. So the immigration reforms under Clinton, there were some very significant start. immigration reforms under Clinton, correct? That were more sweeping than these. Were those by executive order? And what was the history of those? Were they did they land as badly? <laughs> well, yeah. So there, yes, previous presidents have done a version of the same thing, and so there's precedent within the executive to do that. I, I guess I don't have to do this, do I? So there is precedent with pr- previous presidents, but I don't think it's the size, although we don't know what he's done yet. Um, and and also, you don't. Carter is the biggest historical example, right? Well, the, under under Reagan under in '86, but that was a piece of legi- actual legislation. Okay. So, um, but you also just didn't have the climate you have right now. I mean, part of this is. Uh, it's just come after an election, and so conservatives believe, feel like there should be some heed paid to the message of the election, although E.J. Dion made an interesting case in the Post, I think it was today, and his argument was it's a, it requires a little bit of backbending to get this argument, but it's interesting. He says basically this election, the people who didn't turn out for the president's party did not turn out because he didn't do anything on immigration. He didn't stand up, and, and, uh, and, and other Democrats didn't stand up for the ideals they believe in. Therefore, they didn't turn out. Therefore, the message of the election is do things that this huge group of voters who voted for you in the presidential years want, 
And so that's the message that the president could take from the election. You could take so, a lot of those messages, though, all the things he didn't do. Sure. Everything yeah, that's well, not it's a, done. It's a nice well, way to grant yourself this license. Goes, well, yeah. this goes to the point that I wanted to make, John, just and maybe we'll wrap around this, is that there's this a political philosopher at, at Yale who just died, Juan Linz. And Linz has had this studied Latin American governments, which have a similar structure to us. They usually have an elect, a president who's elected... Uh, with popular election than a legislature that's elected separately, unlike uh, the UK where there's a parliamentary system and, and there's one, basically one body is deciding government. And he found by looking at places that have these, these where there are two sources of power, each of which is legitimate, those are incredibly unstable governments. And the big exception to that for a long time was the United States. The United States had a strong, stable uh, democratic government, we, even though you had the president and the legislatures elected separately and with separate power sources. But we, are, we have reached this point where we're totally calcified, and these two, they're each legit, the president has a legitimate source of power, the Congress has a legitimate source of power, neither of them really recognizes that the other the other's power, and we're, they're in a standoff, and it's well, not clear that this is... That it gets resolved because by presidents taking executive action and moving towards more dictatorial methods, or by, you know, I don't know, I mean, I'm a, a Congress that, that sort of well, starts to act... I mean, this goes to a larger fear, which is that our constitutional system of government is right. essentially broken. Right. And we just are too attached to it to admit it. But we've had other larger, more catastrophic events where presidents have tried... I mean, when FDR tried to pack the courts... That was really playing. I mean, that we, we haven't seen this play out. What Obama's doing here is relatively small relative to what presidents have done. Think of what Lincoln did during John, the Civil Lincoln, War. John, that was a civil war. Well, okay, we had FDR to go to war okay, to resolve. I mean, that's serious. That is the two examples you can Lincoln think of are ones that occurred in the, no, no, no. the most profound national crisis. No, no, no. One of which the was FDR resolved didn't pack by the World War II. Because of the war. The other, FDR didn't no, pack I know. That was he packed the courts to do whatever the hell he wanted, which is totally political. But the war resolves a lot of the kind of... It didn't resolve that. He was beaten back. No, he was beaten by that. But there were simmering conflicts that exist in America in the 1930s are resolved by World War II, as in the Civil the Civil War resolves the incredible political showdown that happens in the 1850s. We need, but, we're going to have to have a catastrophic event to resolve the political, sta- the political Obama catastrophe we're having. The thing was that, not no, because of Obama grants amnesty, that, but it's, it's just a general... You yeah, can make a cumulative right. argument, but I don't know. I feel like there's a way in which, I don't know if it's indifference or just there's no other choice, but it seems to me that the the only way in which government functions right now is for the president to kind of yank it along. I mean, even the Affordable Care Act, which I know everybody in the end passed, was so much driven by the executive branch. Well, yeah, my point is that the Constitution and the government was founded on the idea that there would be huge clashes. We've had periods in history where there are massive clashes, where presidents veto bills, where Congress threatens to do all kinds of terrible things, and they ultimately get worked out. We are at, like, the first inning of this game hasn't even begun. Right. We're, like, true. still in the clubhouse. People still don't even, they don't even have their socks on yet. And I so guess my true. point is are, that that's there's too optimistic. Jeff. There's but, well, I, I need one need not have optimism or pessimism. They're not even in the dugout. You don't have like they're not even there. You don't metaphors. We were playing but, football. <laughs> because because football is such a, a screwed up metaphor. We have to move to a whole new game. When they and the game is, right, and right, games and games and baseball. Right Hang up and listen. I need the politics gap fast. <laughs> John, today, as we're taping on Thursday, the president's about to give his speech announcing these uh, immigration reforms. 
the GOP is preemptively, of course, criticizing him and is saying this is an untenable power grab. They're saying it's abuse of power. There are people saying he should be impeached. There are other voices, uh, conservative voices saying, well, we should use our power of government to defund certain agencies or to shut down government. As we're recording, where, where do you think that the politics of this are going? Do you think there's going to be a concerted action by the Republicans in the House and Senate to do something to undermine it. Yeah. I mean, this is the first test of this new relationship. And the president has, I think this is true. I wrote this and I still think I believe it a couple (laughs) days later, which is that this is the first time the president, so he came into office talking about a new mode of operation and bipartisanship. And that kind of dropped soon after its first contact with the enemy, which in this case is the Republican opposition. And so he's tried in various different ways to get around them, to work with them, to cajole them, to give speeches. And I feel like this is the, I think this is the first time I mean, he's doing two things. He's making policy here for up to 5 million people who are in America illegally. But as also as a tactical strategy, he is basically socking them in the nose and waiting to see how Republicans will respond. Will they overreach? Will the people who want to shut, you know, threaten a shutdown of the government and use the big budget issues to um, stop him from doing this? Will they prevail or will uh, kind of calmer minds in the Republican ranks prevail? I think at the moment it seems like the voices of reason on the Republican side to find a way to limit him and circumscribe him and push him and try and stop reverse what he's going to do. That goal is there. But I think the ways in which they will do it won't be so severe. Now, the problem with that is that nobody really knows there's not a really easy way to do what he's doing. For example, you can't remove the appropriations money for what he wants to do because the money for the portion of the immigration service that he's going to use comes from fees and not from it's not appropriated. So it comes from within itself and so they can't Congress can't touch it. Now Stephen King of Iowa, Steve King of Iowa thinks that's bogus, thinks you can stop it. There's going to be this really roiling debate and the goal for Republicans is to you know, kind of get to the end of their debate and have a unified front. And that's a big test. Also, isn't there a problem, which is that he, a lot of what he wants to do actually is inaction is rather not than action. Doing, so right. it's, so how do you defund non-activity? Non-activity, right. You, and so then the question is you punish him somewhere else. So where else they punish him? And then when that debate happens, do people say, you know, how does it play out? Do people say, yeah, it's right for Republicans to try and stop him because he's trying to be an emperor and he's trying to exceed his power? Or do they say... You know, look, he's pressing his advantage. You'll press your advantage on these other things. And don't use this vehicle you've chosen, whatever it may be, to try to punish him for something else. It doesn't, you know, stop trying to do that and just go do your job, which we, you know, you now have all this control. Go do things that are useful to our lives. I'm not sure how that'll, how that ball will bounce. So, Emily, one other question, then we'll move on to our next topic, which is the word impeachment came up this week for the first time around this. We've been waiting for it. It's been I've been waiting for that word to come up for weeks. We haven't heard it. Is it what would be the legal case for impeachment? Is there a legal case for impeachment or is this just like the use? I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's any more legal case than there has been. Um, the president has discretion over how to enforce our immigration laws. Full stop. And I understand, as we discussed on Monday, why the Republicans feel like this is a usurpation of power and a kind of. I think the word monarch came up. I think Ted Cruz called it a monarch-like action. There is something that is obviously power grabbing when you have a big executive action that replaces or at least stands in for um, a legislative effort that Congress is debating. But that doesn't mean it's illegal. One thing we should just note is the passion with which 
people are reacting to this in the grassroots of the conservative movement. I mean, this touches on lawbreaking. I mean, they think the people that the president is letting off the hook here are lawbreakers and that the rhetoric is going to the point where they say, basically, this is the president trying to fundamentally transform American society. I mean, it gets big very fast. Now, people may write those uh, uh, those who say that and think that as sort of histrionic and as – but that sentiment, the notion that he's trying to rewrite the American experience is the same sentiment that fueled the reaction to his healthcare law that then fueled the 2010 election. So it's, it's not just a few hotheads. There are a lot of people who can get behind that notion. And so the reason that's important is just it's interesting because it's happening in the country, but also that pressure will start to push on Republican leaders as they seek a way to react yeah, to the president. You know, it's just like wrong. It's just people like holding, seizing on some historic, I don't want to get into it, John. I don't want to get into it. You're not, I know you're not, rep- this is not your position. I understand you're manifesting somebody else's position, but oh God, I hate hearing that. Can I also, go ahead, Emily. No, I was just going to say that I just find it a little sad that this accusation gets heralded and become so huge in two circumstances, the healthcare law and this potential immigration action in which essentially you're talking about extending mercy to people, trying to help disadvantaged people. I mean, I know that immigrants also have come here illegally, but that's really what we're talking about. And and yet there's still this notion that these are the actions that are somehow, you know, terrible for America or un-American. I just, it doesn't square for me. The GabFest has a sponsor this week. It's stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. And if you do, my goodness, the traffic, the difficulty parking, packed with people mailing their odd-sized holiday gifts and packages. Oof. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Mail carrier will pick it up. It's easy and convenient, and you can get the special offer when you use our promo code GABFEST. No risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Mary Landrieu, the last Democratic senator in the Deep South, tried a Hail Mary this week in an attempt to save her Senate seat. Landrieu is in a runoff election after no candidate got the required majority on election day in her her race. So she tried to rally enough Democratic senators to join all the Republicans in passing a bill to authorize the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, pipeline that would bring oil from the tar sands of Alberta down to the U.S. and ultimately to the refineries of the Gulf Coast. And she was doing this to attempt to show her clout, her willingness to buck the president, support the energy industry, and, and get votes in Louisiana. Her bill failed, following one vote short of the 60 she needed to overcome a filibuster. So several questions. One, would this have helped her win? Two, is the Keystone important? Three, what's going to happen to it? Uh, maybe other things. That was a good start. Okay. A good little so, run. Plus, we can't remember past three anyway. So, John, all evidence is that she's going to lose. Under any circumstance, she would have lost anyway. Democrats, the official Democratic Party infrastructure has abandoned her basically because they're broke and they just don't think it's it would be throwing good money after bad. She's trailing. She has – I saw the statistic. This was the most amazing statistic I think I've seen this election. Less than 20 percent support among white voters. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. This is one of the 
states that uh, you had a red state, you know, a Democrat running in a state that Barack Obama lost by double digits. She would have lost even if this had passed. And the logic behind it was so nutty. <laughs> I mean, so when she was running before Election Day, she said, I'm chairman of the Energy Committee and I have all this power and things I can bring to the state. Well, one thing we know is if she's reelected, she will no longer be chairman of the Energy Committee. So already she's lost a thing that didn't help her on Election Day, but she's now lost it even. So then the vote itself was silly because even if the Keystone Pipeline passed out of the Senate, it was pretty sure the president was going to veto it. And also, even though it's now been defeated, it's going to actually pass when Republicans take control in January. So I can't think of a last-ditch effort. I mean, this wasn't just like a Hail Mary. This was like Hail Mary, a lighting of the candles, a crossing yourself, and like, I don't know, one other religious um, saying the Our Father. I mean, this was just like this crazy gambit that could never have worked. And it was, um, you know, a bit of an embarrassment, too, because Mary Landrews talked about how, you know, she could make the Senate work for Louisiana. And like, she didn't. I mean, incredibly steep hill to climb, but that's the nature of where the Senate is. Emily, the interesting thing about Keystone is that it appears to be a total mirage of an issue. Uh, just a, It's symbolic, it's right? It's totally symbolic because the environmentalists who object to it have to face up to the fact that, one, this energy, this oil is going to be extracted. It is already being extracted in Alberta. Tar sands oil is being taken up. It is being shipped. It is coming into the United States. The only question is really whether it comes by this pipeline, other pipelines, or by rail. And Pipelines, actually, I think are probably more sa – are safer environmentally and more efficient than, than rail is. You cannot reduce carbon emissions by stopping the Keystone XL pipeline. You're, you're simply just uh, shifting transportation modes. Uh, on the other hand, the claim that this is a huge economic boon for the United States is also is completely uh, without up. merit. There, it will supply – some thousands of construction jobs, but then the amazing, the other amazing stat: only thirty-five permanent jobs will be created by this pipeline. So that is quite. Let's just pause on that and consider, since it seems to be trumpeted by its supporters as a major jobs creator. Well, so given that, why does it take it on symbolic importance? You know, in some ways, this issue is a bit of a throwback because the environmental energy behind it, as I understand it, had a lot to do with preserving the forests in Canada. More than climate change, I mean, the the, um, the degree to which this um, oil extraction is going to add to climate change is tiny compared to the output of the United States, not to mention China, et cetera, et cetera. So in some ways, this isn't really a climate change issue. It's about saving this area in Canada. And it's also about priorities, making decisions to trammel and change a big natural area for a potentially negligible economic gain. And it, in the time since Canada proposed this pipeline originally in 2005, the pipeline itself has become less important for all the reasons you just said. There are now all these other methods of getting the energy out of the ground and transporting it all over the place, not even just to the United States. So it's this funny sort of um, leftover issue that has become this big talking point, partly, I think, just because it's a good way for Republicans to pick a fight with Obama. They can make him look anti-jobs. People seem to agree with them when you look at the polls. And partly because it sort of has continued to linger out there. There's Obama is ostensibly waiting for a Nebraska Supreme Court decision about whether it should be allowed. It's like tangled up in the courts and in Washington. 
I thought, as David said, there are actual environmental. I mean, it's not just global warming, but it's the runoff from the process of extracting the. Do we decide how to pronounce it? Bitumen or bitumen? Bitumen, I think. Yeah, no, that's why I said I thought it was a sort of throwback, like a, not a throwback, but it's more about local environmental impact right. which, than it is about climate change. Which, as we as we all agreed, is an issue separate and apart from whether how it's transported. Yes. Well, it's connected, right? Because the part that's about the environmental impact potentially in Nebraska is about the building yeah. of the pipeline. And then there's the forests in Canada. Right. But I mean, the the runoff isn't going to affect them in Nebraska. What affects them in Nebraska no. is if the pipeline bursts and and you have an issue there, right? Right. But I think David's point is that the Canadians are going to figure out how to abstract, sorry, yeah. how to extract this Correct. like mushy, gooey stuff However from the ground, it, whether right. we build this pipeline Which is not. why, right, which is why as an environmental... It just seems like the environment – you can't stop that. The United States can't stop that from happening. So it means the prize is ever smaller, I think, right. is what David would – Yes. So here's a question. There's an interesting column by John Chait saying there's a – the political game theory of this is, well, it will. the Republicans will pass it. Obama will veto it and then Obama will horse trade. He will give the Keystone XL pipeline in exchange for something that he wants. But Chait makes the argument that actually Republicans don't even care that much about getting the pipeline. So that they they really probably won't horse trade much of anything. What they want is something to club Obama with because right. it's not – it doesn't actually have a major economic benefit. It has a major symbolic point scoring benefit and therefore exactly. the, it has actually not that much trade value. That's a really smart point. And also and, – and whatever they would trade it for would be something they would get in trouble for capitulating on. I think that's right. I think they want total surrender from the president on Keystone, but just, I think, by itself. Once you start mixing in other things, it gets Republicans in, in trouble. I don't know where the horse trading theory came from because I'm skeptical of it too. I just think like that kind of horse trading isn't going on these days and it won't. I have never understood why environmentalists made this the symbolic test of betrayal, because right. that's how it's going to play right. when and if Obama signs this bill. You know, maybe it's a little bit retro in a sense, like they thought this was the right fight to pick a couple of years ago. Now, if Obama is signing this, you know, I know it's non-binding, but still this groundbreaking climate change deal with China and yeah. setting up a real accord in for Paris, um, which is the, you know, big international multi-country possibility and getting the EPA to enact really tough regulations on smog and factories, et cetera, then it feels like this is like small change over right. to the side. And yet I know we're going to read the sort of like, you know, hand wringing about the betrayal of the president. But Emily, isn't maybe the horse trading is actually internal to Democrats, which is that President Obama is mm -hmm. actually preparing huge environmental regulations involving ozone, um, downwind yes. pollution around coal plants emissions. And maybe what he's going to tell his Democrats is like, you know what, I'm going to give up. I'll give up on Keystone. But instead, we're getting all these great things and that, he, that his commitment would be to stick with these other ones. So like have this distracting fight about Keystone, which he loses and then be pushing through all these other regulations. I don't know. I mean, well, that I, sounds like a really good trade to me from the point of view of climate change and the environment. He's also in terms of the post-election liberation that he's feeling. We talked about this a little bit in terms of him speaking up on net neutrality. And what he's doing now on immigration and then now you could imagine him being a lot more liberated on Keystone because he doesn't have to worry about money from environmental donors or to the extent that there are voters voting on this issue, you know, not participating in the elections anymore. He's done with that nonsense. And so he can be a little more free and he's not got – as you quite rightly point out, 
Emily, in the in the legacy tallying at the end of his presidency, Keystone, if he even if he capitulates totally on it, is going to be pretty small compared right. to these other right advances. You know, one final point, totally non not germane to the politics of this, that I was struck as I've been reading about Keystone is it's how invisible the gigantic industrial economy is when you live in a city that there's so much this, this is a huge object a physical object that will like literally cut across the united i mean if it is built it would literally cut the entire united states in half i mean this pipeline it doesn't effectively cut it in half because you know your roads go through it and so forth but it's a gigantic thing and there are these pipelines the train tracks the huge refineries they they are all over the country but if you live in a city and you work in an information economy it's totally invisible to you and i think that's a huge divide in american life it's like not this stuff is not visible to us and also we don't appreciate the work that goes into them and the work that it, it creates for people and how valued those the labor is to the people who have it i don't have a point to make except just i was struck by that you guys Fair can enough. you guys can agree Oh, yeah. No, John, I couldn't agree more. John, I know it touched you. It touched the Dickersonian soul there. Let's move on to our next topic, which is the most important topic because Thanksgiving is coming and therefore we must think and talk about it all the time. Question I have I throw out to you, our listeners, and to you, John and Emily. Is Thanksgiving liberal or conservative? Other holidays are clearly liberal or conservative. Christmas is conservative. New Year's Day is conservative, but New Year's Eve is liberal. July 4th is conservative. Veterans Day is conservative. Labor Day is liberal. Martin Luther King Day is liberal. Valentine's Day, hard to judge. Arbor Day. Halloween. Halloween is liberal. Halloween is liberal. I mean, by this really blunt calculus you're using. Purim is... Sukkot? (laughs) You get into weird Jewish politics there. Confusing. (laughs) <laughs> Ramadan's liberal. So uh, there's, in fact, there's evidence that July 4th celebrations, the patriotic July 4th celebrations, make people more conservative. If they have involved in, in extremely patriotic celebrations as a kid and lots of fireworks, it makes them actually more conservative as they grow up. And there was this incredible moment in American history, which I didn't know about until I started reading for the segment of Thanksgiving. Did you guys know about this? Which is that in the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt is a way to goose the economy when there was low retail sales during the Depression, Thanksgiving was going to fall. It was the last Thursday of November. It was going to fall on November 30th. And the retailers were upset about this. And they wanted more time. They wanted a longer Christmas shopping season. So they asked him to move it. And so he, he moved it back to the week before, to November 23rd, so they'd have a longer season. And there were Republicans were incensed by it and said he was you know tampering with tradition. Power grab. Power grab. Yeah, it's like he's moved, changing the Emperor, calendar, the uh, Julian calendar, for yeah. God's sake. And so they were, for, brief, for a period, they were celebrated – Thanksgiving was celebrated on different days in different parts of the country. And ultimately, they reconciled somewhere in the middle, which it went from being the last Thursday, I guess, to the fourth Thursday, right? Now it's the fourth Thursday, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it's the fourth yeah, Thursday. Yeah, whatever the calendar says, I just go by. Yeah, it's the fourth Thursday. So it used to be the last Thursday, and then it was okay. the next to last Thursday, and they settled on the fourth Thursday. So do you guys have an, an intuition about whether Thanksgiving is liberal or conservative? I think it's neither. Um, oh, that's what you always say. Nah, no, no, I think it's – usually I think it's both. So I guess it could be – I guess I could take a position <laughs> this, this here true. too. Why is it neither? I think it's because it's so much more associated with family and family is – you know, whether it's, a, whether it's your nuclear family or togetherness family, family is a, is a less political unit in the way it can be defined on Thanksgiving. I understand – 
severely how family can be a political – the definition of family can be a highly political topic. But on Thanksgiving, the notion of family gets expanded. You have your own family comes over, but then you also have like people travel to go see their family or you have other people in and you kind of take them into your family thing. And then that feels neither conservative nor liberal. Huh. Hmm. I think that feels conservative to me in the sense that if in fact, as you say, oh, it's really all that family is, is, doesn't have any nuclear family definitional, that really it is we're all, uh, we're all frothed together in one giant family stew and, and it could be a relative, it could be a friend. And that, is, that would be a more liberal interpretation. But, but in fact, I think it's, what it is is it imposes nuclear family limits general, for most people. It's a nuclear family celebration and you're, you're kind of forced to be in the belly of your nuclear family for most people. And that's a, that's a more conservative notion. I mean, the fact that it's not Christian, it's our single biggest holiday that is not a Christian celebration, right? So in that sense, it's kind of open to everyone who's willing to identify as American. Yes, right. And it has this multicultural mythology attached to it where it's – Yeah, although the multicultural mythology of the pilgrims and the Indians making peace looks kind of OK, like hand-holding – Kumbaya until you consider the fact that then afterwards the Indians all got wiped out. Wait, so therefore what? What is that? Well, it's a little bit – if you actually like think about the end of the story, it starts to become very bleak and about American colonialism. Right. So it's a tradition – it's in fact a very traditional notion of America, of American history, which is that, oh, as we tell it to ourselves as opposed to as it actually happened, as we tell it to ourselves, it's this mythic coming together. It's these great – you know, there's an element of religious freedom. There's an element of, of you know, share, uniting to create a great America, which is a definitely conservative notion. And the liberal reinterpretation, it's, oh, no, these are crazy Christian zealots who then went out and massacred all the people they had dinner with. But right. I think the, just the conservative the happy... narrative is more dominant than the liberal counter narrative. Well, it is, it right. is interesting that it's lost its um, uh, religious piece because, I mean, they're giving thanks to – God. <laughs> so, you know, but it's just, I wonder when and how it lost that. I mean, maybe it's just part of the larger secularization of American life. Um, how about, how does the football and the shopping right. play into this? Yeah, because, that's more secularization. Right? Um, yeah. But and also, also you know, where it comes, where it also comes from is there are some families, I've, I've been told, where uh, people don't really want to spend that much time with each other. And the football game is this sanctuary for lots of people who can only tolerate brief sorties into the heart of the nuclear family. And, and then I don't know why. The, the, it seems to me the shopping thing is just some kind of huge experiment in self-abuse that uh, everybody's <laughs> agreed to participate right. in. Well, you could argue that the eating, the football watching, and the shopping are, you know – America's most self-indulgent impulses and you're actually being encouraged and told this is a moment in which you're supposed to indulge all three of them simultaneously, practically. And you can escape your family right. in the process. Right. I can't believe that that neither of you has brought up the, the, the most obviously conservative aspect of it, which is that – so what do conservatives believe? You believe you don't change things, right? That's a, that's a basic conservative tenet of conservatism, his, you know, the small c. And the principle of Thanksgiving is we eat the same meal. We eat the same meal theoretically that our pilgrim 
ancestors ate. We certainly ate the same meal that we ate last year and the year before that and the year before that. And and tampering with that is is a kind of is a form of violation. You do you it's like Hayek says, you know, you you change these traditions at your peril. You don't know what will happen if you start serving tofu instead of turkey. It will all fall apart. I was going to say especially if you tamper in a vegetarian direction, that's right. really not okay. Right. And it's you know, it's a holiday <laughs> where it's not acceptable to be a vegetarian where vegetarians are mocked even more. So that seems to me like a like a deeply conservative idea about eating. Now it's true that we only do that one day a year or maybe, you know, on Christmas too, I suppose that happens. I don't think people uh, have a Christmas meal the way I mean some people do, but there's not can you think of I mean, is it Yorkshire pudding or what I mean there's not an an American national meal the way Turkey is thrust upon everybody on Thanksgiving. Right. You're going to have to tell us, John. We're not the ones to tell you what Christmas dinner is Yeah, no, I know. Well, I mean, but you would, (laughs) I should think that having had glancing familiarity with the Christian tradition growing up in America, (laughs) you might have fumbled upon a piece of knowledge about what was eaten. uh, There's not really... uh, We hear there are trees. We hear the tree is a big part of the celebration. I mean, I think families have their their traditional dinners for sure, but I don't think they are all the same traditional dinner. The way it's the way it's the case with Thanksgiving, right? Um, I think you're, you make a good point about the turkey and the and the sameness of the of the uh, of the meal. But maybe I don't because maybe it's it, what's interesting about it is it's the only day where that's the case. That in fact it's well, but you were asking us to define the day, and right. so in the sense that that's an attribute of the yeah. day, then you're then you're right about the conservative part of it. Can I just stick up for doing the same thing over and over again? I mean, not absolutely the turkey on Thanksgiving, though I am a fan of turkey. I really like recurring traditions. I like things where I know what to expect, totally, and I can look forward to them, and they're basically going to deliver. I mean, I obviously there's a place for adventure and new experiences, but I I really like holidays that are reliably yes. solid in their dimensions. And you can make fun of the parts you don't like. I couldn't agree more. You, you know, this is interesting because I actually think, and you guys are going to mock me for this, I think this gets at something that is fundamentally conservative about all three of us because I would have said, I would have said exactly the same thing. That, so, Emily, you play some kind of flaming liberal on the show. John, you do whatever. You're doing whatever <laughs> it is. And I'm – like, and you're what, like this is no this discussion points to the way in which conservatism as a political notion has disassociated from conservatism as a, its historical meaning because as a way of life as yeah. a sort of like pillar of one's existence yeah. i think you're absolutely right about that anyway let's leave it there that was a very i found that a very enriching discussion let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having your cranberry, do you drink? Do you guys drink on Thanksgiving? Do you drink on Thanksgiving, John? <laughs> How could one? No, get, John would never could, have a drop of alcohol on Thanksgiving. How could one? How could get you imagine it without it? What would? What How is, is your, he what's survive? your choice on Thanksgiving? Uh, it's um, mostly wine because we do it early. We we start earlier. We're starting even earlier this year, so it's it's the eight a.m. glass of red no, wine. It's, but it's like we're around <laughs> noon this year, uh, mm. which um, which is a problem because then by like four. You're all like groggy, yeah. tryptophan, wine, you, and it's all like early dark, and somebody wants to go for a walk, and it's kind of yep. like, ugh. You know, and you just, and then you like have those painful naps where you wake up in like this half deep sleep, and, and you're sweating, and it's like 7.30, and then you eat, <laughs> or not. Right, and, and then you sort of vaguely feel like you can have dinner, which in fact is really the last thing you need. Yeah, there's and there's, there used to be a tradition long ago, I think before there were little kids running around, of going to a movie that night and one year we went to go see 
Beowulf in 3D, which oh was God. the worst <laughs> the possible nightmare. Yeah, I mean, you're coming out of the whole family eating experience like a blinking naked mole rat, and then you go in <laughs> to like the. 3D Beowulf, which was just a disaster in what is otherwise a very good story. He was one good king. Um, And uh, anyway, so that was the epic kind of sad. Do you want that to be your chatter? Do you have another one? (laughs) That was pretty good. I haven't actually. John recommends 3D version of Beowulf after Thanksgiving dinner. So my chatter is about a new book uh, that is coming out called um, Lincoln and the Power of the Press. It's, oh, no. Uh, Lincoln and the Power of Winston it. Churchill. It's written by, it's written by um, Harold Holzer, who's a, a longtime uh, eminent Lincoln scholar. And in it, I learned Lincoln had been a publisher for a period, um, and he owned a German newspaper. And the reason this is interesting to me is that um, – he was basically trying to build his coalition to win in 1960. In back, back in the day, back then, if you were an immigrant, you could vote right away. So all the new German immigrants who came over were immediately up for grabs as voters, which is interesting since this is a book and, you know, when we're, we're having a moment of immigration conversation in America right now. And so what Lincoln was trying to do – and the Irish tended to vote for the Democrats and the Germans were going to vote. Hopefully Lincoln vote for him. So he bought the Springfield Weekly newspaper with this German – the German owner was had fallen on hard times, and so Lincoln said, I will buy it, and I'll run it, or I'll help support it, and then when I'm elected president – so the only condition for me help buying it and, and supporting it is just that you embrace Republican ideas. And this was at a time when the press – this was before the press had a commercial interest in trying to appeal to both parties. So the press was totally owned by the individual political parties. I mean there were obviously different factions and things, but they were thoroughly, thoroughly – partisan. And so Lincoln was using this basically as an organizing tool. And one thing that was just interesting about this, an organizing tool to get basically German voters. But in the course of this, Lincoln had to express his view on immigration. And um, I just thought it was an interesting quote from him on that score, which was, understanding the spirit of our institutions to aim at the elevation of men, I am opposed to whatever tends to degrade them. I have some little notoriety for commiserating the oppressed condition of the Negro, and I should be strangely inconsistent if I could favor any project for curtailing the existing rights of white men, even though born in different lands and speaking different languages from myself. So that's an interesting quote in the context of America's current immigration debate. Uh, But like today's current immigration debate, which is all about politics, Lincoln's ownership of the German newspaper was too. All right. That was a good one, John. Emily, what what is the Thanksgiving tipple for you guys? Well, are you asking me what I drink or what yeah. I'm chattering? We drink a lot drink? of red wine on Thanksgiving. All right. Was that, in fact, the question? Yeah, was, and now, now what's your chatter? Yeah. As I'm drinking red wine, I'm going to be despairing the end of the fish. I know this is a day of turkey, but to go back to our earlier environmental theme, I am distressed by a new study in science suggesting that there aren't going to be any more fish by 2048. I mean, maybe some farm fish, but honestly, maybe not because the ecosystems are kind of falling apart, essentially, because of declining water quality and bad algae and ocean dead zones and killing fish and coastal flooding and other things. All of these things seem linked to global warming, even if I'm not sure precisely how. And the idea of no fish is upsetting. Like No fish to go fish in the sea. Think of all those fisher men and women. I'm not one myself, but anyway, discouraging. That is, uh, that's depressing. 
my chatter, also depressing, is uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a really, really on a roll today. There's a really grim story in the Times today about the there's a naval nurse, a Navy nurse who refused to force feed prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And this nurse basically said it was against his medical ethics. It was wrong to do this. Pa- patients are allowed to refuse life-sustaining treatment if they so choose and defied orders that he force feed. And now he is being pursued by the military for this, um, an internal inquiry, which could result in him being discharged dishonorably, possibly losing a pension. And uh, what the news this week was that a Navy, that a uh, nursing association has come to his defense and says, you know, this, there should be leniency for this. But it raises, this, you know, it reminds us of all the terrible ways in which medical professionals have been roped into the torture and cruelty and and wrong behavior that has gone on in the war on terror. And also, you know, if, if you think about capital punishment, too, the way in which medical professionals have been dragooned into that, into sort of finding drugs, the best drugs to execute people with. And, you know, one of the real strengths, I'm generally opposed to guilds. I'm opposed to to organizations that keep out people and force them to qualify. I, I think, like, the market should be freer about that. But one of the very useful things about guilds is to uphold ethical standards or to, to create ethical standards for what what you should or shouldn't do if you are in a profession. And medicine has the very strongest ones of them. So I'm glad to see at least the, the nursing associations are standing up for this, but but that the military isn't. Let's do the credits. Our intern is Max Tawney. So I was thinking what of everyone's Thanksgiving food, what they were. And I would decide that Max, you, Max, you're a sparkling apple cider. You're a very refreshing, crisp. You bring energy to, to the joint. Uh, Joel Meyer, our new managing producer, is he's very bright-eyed. I would say he's – but he's also – he's got this job. He's got to be like the connector. So I'm going to give him the mashed potatoes, which sort of join everything together in a meal. Mike Volo is the stuffing, deep – Delicious, essential. Can't do it without it. Do you agree with that, Mike? Yeah, good. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, is uh, he picks at food. He's a vegan. He is that sad-looking spinach salad that no one is eating. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. I left a rating on the GabFest this week. Never done it before. I just was happened to be in iTunes. You mean our own show? On our own show. You said, "Hey, we're pretty good." I didn't. I didn't comment. I just said, "That's a five star show." I couldn't agree more. They really help us when you do that. You can search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes Store. All right, Emily Bazelon, you are cranberry orange relish. I'll take that. That's my favorite kind of relish. Thank you. Yes, you're sweet, tart, bright, and very New Englandy. John Dickerson. I like the kind that's like in the food processor and cold, not like mushy and stewed. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, totally. Okay, good. Definitely, definitely. And 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 and, and how liberal are you in your uh, application of the orange cranberry? I mean, does it just go on the turkey, or are you sometimes putting it on the biscuit? I don't know. I, yeah, only, I know you don't oh, have any ham turkey. encroaching on this conversation. The turkey, because we have cranberry muffins, so they don't need extra cranberry. But I like the idea of it on the biscuit. Mm, you not on the stuffing, muffin. though. I, I like food to be separate on my plate as a general. I mean, I'm not like super anal about it, but I generally like different things to be in different places. How long does it take you to travel to whatever strange world it is where you have cranberry muffins on Thanksgiving? Let's, let's, <laughs> About let's, two hours. let's not impugn people. John Dickerson, what do you think you are, John? The turkey that's been left in a little too long. No. You're the pecan pie. No, oh my god, pecan pie true. is my favorite pie. Yeah, because you're 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 somewhat southern. You're you're 
profound, your traditional, and irreplaceable, and very sweet. Sweet. Oh, yeah. that's so nice. But a little savory, oh too. Um, I made, made, made myself your fourth slice of pie, which is that you love it, <laughs> yeah. but you really hate yourself for loving it. <laughs> You should be that really... Doesn't your mom make some great mocha or yes. chocolate pie? Yeah, yeah that one. Yeah. Be that uh, one. For No, I just have to be true true to myself. I have to be true to what I am. For okay. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. We'll put, we're will put we doing the show a little bit early. So maybe... I don't know if it'll be up early, but we're going to tape it early. We'll talk to you next week. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age, the seven wonders of the modern world. Unlike the architectural monuments of antiquity, the great achievements of today are made possible by systems, infrastructure, and technologies that are, for the most part, invisible. To find out more, go to slate.com slash seven wonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. This series was developed in partnership with GE. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>